Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We thank you for the trials that we face in life and the, and the blessings we face in life. We ask you to give us strength to be able to go through both. Lord, for anybody who's on their way, we ask you to bring them, bring them to us quickly. And Lord, we ask for your leading and guidance as we look at this, this uh, proverb today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Proverbs 17. We'll do like I normally do, about five, five proverbs, at a, five verses at a time. Better, is, it, better a dr- is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. A wise servant shall rule over a son that causes shame and shall have part of an inheritance among the brethren. The fining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tries the hearts. A wicked doer gives heed to false lips, and a liar giveth ear to a naughty tongue. Whoso mocketh the poor reproaches his maker, and he that is glad at calamity shall not be unpunished. All right, first one. Better is a dry morsel and quietness or ease there, therewith than a house full of sacrifices and with strife. And this one is kind of interesting because this sacrifices that, that in the Hebrew indicates the peace offering, which is what we've been talking about in Leviticus. It's that offering that you you give to to bring your you know to the temple. The priest gets to eat of it, and and you get to eat of it. It's that communion, and so it's talking about having a lot because remember you got a great big portion of that peace offering back, and so he's saying you can have a lot of a lot of stuff in strife, and it's you would be better off having just a dry piece of bread in quietness. And this is something that's important for us to understand. And we see, and you see this a lot. If you really get to know people who have lots of money, there's oftentimes a lot of strife in their life. You know, people wanting things from them. You know, they're worried about losing what they have. Uh, their relationships aren't working out. There's fighting and bickering. And God says, you know, you'd be better off with nothing in peace than everything with strife. And we all know that that's, a, that's quite a standard axiom. And anybody who's ever lived in the strife and, 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 and confusion wishes that they had nothing sometimes and say it would be just easier. And I've even seen people who take this verse and, and twist it around and saying, well, because I've got so much strife, I'm just going to abandon everybody and everything. And I've seen divorces happen because of that. Now, well, uh, I'm not, not having a good time, so I'm just going to quit everything and go make my life easy. A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causes shame and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. A wise servant shall have rule over the son, over a son that causes shame. And this is the idea of the servant will be blessed above a family member who's being wise, you know, and if you have a family member who's causing all the trouble, you, you know, the owner of the servant or the master of the servant will raise that servant up and treat, you know, treat them well and have that inheritance among the family. And if you go back all the way back to Abraham's complaint before he had Isaac, you know, God, you told me I'm going to have a kid, but the only, the only person who's going to get my inheritance is my servant. It was a different time, servants, especially the servants that had been with you all your life and had shown themselves faithful pretty much almost became family. They weren't, they were a notch below family, but you treated them well and oftentimes put them in your, put them in your will to say, you know, this servant has been really good. They get this when I die. And that went all the way up to the Roman Empire that we saw that in Joseph being raised to be the whole master. You know, he was in Potiphar's house and it says Potiphar didn't even know what he owned because Joseph was the one who ran everything. Uh, But God had other plans for him. Uh, so this is very important that there's that idea that you can get a benefit. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tries the heart. And this is this whole idea that when you refine silver and you refine gold, you make it very hot. And the impurities will rise to the, to the surface of the, of the, of the uh, gold or silver and then they skim the impurities off and they keep this process going until they get pure gold or as pure as they want to use. And we still have that standard of how many carats of gold do you 
are you buying 10 carat, you know, 12 carat, 14 carat, you know, I don't know what the top of it is, you know, but we have that same standard. How pure is your gold? Uh, and God is saying, we can do this, but he says, the Lord tries the heart. And this is, we talk about this all the time. Everything we do is about God. Surrendering to God. Giving up my rights to God. Giving up my desires to God. Uh, my, you know, when we talk about, and I've so said this, one of my favorite words in the New Testament is when we are told to forbear one another. And that word means to give up my right to demand punishment for what you've done to wrong me. And the Christian is to forbear others. And that's a hard thing to do. We don't want to do that in the flesh. <laughs> when, somebody, when somebody hurts us, legitimately hurts us, we want to strike out and say, I want them to pay. You know, it, they've hurt me. It is my right. And, and it is our right in one sense, you know, because they've hurt us. But God says he has a higher standard for us as Christians. And that's to forbear and say, I'm going to forgive them. We may not even tell them we're forgiving them. We're just going to forgive them and say, I give up my right to demand your punishment. It's very important. It's one of the ways we can live at peace when we truly learn to forbear. Now, that doesn't mean I get all uptight and say, okay, I'm not going to demand punishment. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to, we're all uptight about it. No, that's not forbearing. <laughs> we may not be pushing for their punishment, but we haven't given up our right to demand that punishment. And forbearing literally is I'm giving up that right. I am not going to make that person suffer because they should. And there are lots of people that should suffer for what they do to us. But there are some things that have to be taken. I mean, there are things that have to be done. I mean, if you're raising kids, you're teaching them and disciplining them. That is something you need to do as a parent. But for everyday, everyday infractions, you know, if your wife hurts you or your neighbor hurts you, uh, the person down the street hurts you, uh, you know, and you got to be careful because parents do have to discipline their kids. We're told to discipline our kids because we're trying to build a child who is going to follow God. God disciplines us. Okay, discipline is not really the same thing as requiring punishment, and we want to be careful. There are times we're going to stand up for our rights. Okay, there are going to be those times, but you look at what the Christians did in the early church, and saying, "I am going to serve Christ. I am going to suffer for Christ at the hands of others, and I'm not going to require punishment for what they've done." Okay, and there's those times when, and probably most of the time, that we're to forbear requiring uh, punishment. And yes, we discipline our kids. Yes, if you're running a business, you're going to make sure your workers are working, okay? But that's a slightly different realm of existence than our day-to-day -day interaction with people. My day-to-day -day interaction with people, I'm not going to sit there and, and try to say, God, punish them. When you deal with adults, you pretty much all you can ever do is forbear. You know, unless you're going to have them arrested or anything. And even then, I'm not. that's going to be a dependent upon your circumstances. We've got to remember, God has already paid for everything that's done to us through Jesus Christ. He's paid for all sin. Mm -hmm. Now, if my life is truly being punished, you know, being challenged, I will either defend myself or get out of the situation. And I'm more likely going to choose get out of the situation. Leave. Let the let the situation calm down. Okay, and that's important because there's not there's some battles you're not going to win. There's some people who want to battle whether you want to battle or not, and your best your best avenue is to retreat. And that also means that you literally have to drop it when talking to other people and be strong and forget. Yeah, be you know, strong. Work at forgetting the activity as best you can, because if you're forbearing and you're saying you're forgiven, but then you go talk to everybody else about it, because you're not going to if somebody's in your face, it's going to be very hard to not want to do something in return. So well, you've got I mean, to get out of the situation. Yeah. And sometimes that's your best thing you can do is just get away from what's going on. Nice new road, huh? Yeah. So I went out there and took out the new road and got the heck out of there. Yeah. But uh, the idea that God is going to try our hearts. Because we can say we've forgiven somebody. We can say that we're you know, we're doing the right thing. But God knows and he's going to set up the trial for us to know. And we've talked a lot about this, you know, and it, it goes into what I've talked about. The, the extent of the trial will be to the extent that we have learned to bypass it, okay? And God will set up the trial. He is going to try the heart. Are you truly forgiving? Are you truly, you know, 
releasing the punishment for that person? Are you truly loving that person? And God sets the trial. He sets the amount of heat. And it's the same thing with the, with the refining pot. That's why he uses the idea of the refining pot in the furnace. You set the heat high to a certain temperature to get a certain amount of dross out, and then you increase the temperature and melt more out of it. And God is working at removing all the dross and the evil out of our life, and he's going to do that by giving us hard times and saying, are you going to depend on me and get the dross taken out, or are you going to you know, work, work in your flesh and, and fail the test? So the key is how, who are we going to turn to? as God is testing us. And every one of us will have certain tests that we fail with, you know, fail with great failure. And then there's going to be times when we pass the test with flying colors and say, I, I did this one, I did it right. <laughs> and then every stage in between <laughs> where we fail a little and, and pass a little. But all of it is for God to test who we are. Who we are. And he knows exactly how to set the test up for us to know if we, and it guaranteed if we act in our flesh, we will fail. And if we act in the spirit, we will be successful. And it's, it's hard. We are all going to fail. We're all going to be successful at times, depending on which direction we go. And it's God testing us. You know, we fail. It's not his fault that we failed the test. It's his, you know, it's our fault because we have our sin nature and we let the sin nature rule. But he sets a test up that puts us in a position to pass or fail. And he wants us to pass. He wants us to turn to him and pass. And we need to be careful. And each one of us probably have at least one person in our life that we can pick at and say, this person knows how to touch my buttons and make, me you know, make, make it difficult for me to pass the test. And that's the one we want to pray for even all the more, saying, God, help me when this person when this person is around, or you know, help me stay away from this person as much as possible. And family is good about that. They know how to touch the buttons. They know how to, to and why we do that, I don't know. But I know that I do the same thing, you know, to touch the buttons to irritate certain people. And, you know, and just because I get in an ornery mood sometimes, you know, and they get in an ornery mood and try to do it, you know, and do it to me. And we have to then sit back and go, okay, God, Okay, and test where we're at with God. Key is to grow beyond those those triggers too. Triggers. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it is important to grow beyond those triggers or but you know sometimes I call them buddies, but they're triggers that will will set somebody off. And the key is to grow beyond them. And that takes time. It takes God, and it's not easy. You know, believe me when I when I teach from the Word of God, I'm you know it's a very black and white issues, but I know that it's not black and white when we live it. You know, there's all these little hardships that we face. But i got to teach God's word, which is black and white. God says it's a sin or it's not a sin, and there's no in-between with God. You know, uh, all of these shades of gray that we think are out there, that we think are okay, God says, no, you sinned. A little bit of sin is sin. And, you know, he wants us to be correct. And we can't live correctly without him. And I, and I guarantee we will never live correctly without him. And our, and our job is to live correctly. You know, when we're attacked, we, we want to respond. And the key is I want to just sit back and say, okay, God, you tell me when to speak. You tell me when not to speak. And usually it's going to be don't speak. There are, there are occasions when God says, okay, now it's time to say something. But when you're going to say something, Think twice, think three times, think four times. Make sure that it is God telling you to take that defense. Because otherwise, we've talked about it, God wants to be our defense, and he's a much better defender than we will ever be. And, you know, and I've had people tell me, well, that makes people think they won. I go, who cares? I'm not here to win an argument. And we are called to love people. And that sometimes means that we're going to be willing to lose the lose the argument or lose the battle so that God can win the war. And it's not nice sometimes. I guarantee it's not nice. I don't like to, you know, when somebody is, is chewing me out and saying things negative to about me, even in my face, that I know aren't true, it's hard to bite my tongue and not come against them. But I've learned so much that it's not worth it. It's not worth 
messing up Christian witness to argue with somebody and win a, win a war in the flesh. Uh, I've done that many times and probably will do it many more times in the future, but I have learned more often than not to sit back and just say, okay, God, you tell me whether I you know, deal with this or not. I've had to forgive people and tell them they didn't know what they're doing. But see, the key to that is leave out that last part. Just forgive them. Because as soon as you say, I'm sorry, but, you know, you didn't know what you were doing or you did this, your sorry means nothing. You're now going back into trying to manip manipulate them through your, through your apology. Any excuse, any, yeah, any, any, escalated it. any decision beyond I'm sorry that you truly mean. And just leave it. And leave it. That's not problem. why I'm doing it, not, yeah. not you did this and this is why, don't even try to explain. Wow. If you don't mean the apology and you can't go beyond the I'm sorry, it is really a manipulation that's trying to control somebody, you know, or, or saying that I'm sorry, but it was really your fault. Okay, and that's no longer an apology. So you've got to stop. You've got to, number one, truly mean that you're sorry on the apology and then stop. <laughs> Oh. No reason why I'm apologizing. No reason why oh, the youth you caused me to do I it. Uh, the apology must be an apology with no, no conditions, no additions, oh, no reasons why I'm apologizing. Uh, you know, I, you know, I can't go. Well, I'm really sorry. God wants me to forgive you. That's not going to work. <laughs> you know, because they're going to say, well, that means you didn't, you wouldn't have apologized if it wasn't for your where you are you just got you got to stop that even though it is God that says to even though it is God's we're, we're forgiving somebody because God tells us we're supposed to even though it is is through love and, and, and we're trying to get things in we've got to mean the apology and this is why I've said every time I've talked about it apology must be real just saying the words people see right through it it has to mean you have to really be apologetic and you stop right there no reason, not because God said to, not because I'm, I love you, just I'm really sorry that I did this. And you stop. Wow. Any, any explanation negates your apology or escalates the problem because you're laying the burden back on them. And so it's very important. Wow, that takes you know, practice. It takes a lot of practice. It takes God. God. It takes God to be a true apology because you have to have him working through you just imagine if God says, well, I'm really, you know, really sorry that you've hurt me and it's all your fault. <laughs> yeah, that's not an apology. Well, like Jesus on the cross. The forgive forgive them, them for they know not what they do. Yeah, don't add that. <laughs> I've added that. I wouldn't add that in, in most cases, but in, in his case, he was talking to the Father. And from a Christian point of view, we should just say, okay, God's going to have the last word in the long run anyway. So I don't have to have the last word. I don't have to try to battle that person. I just... And again, it's do I love this person with a God's love enough to let things drop and let them have the last word? And that is a hard thing to do because our flesh fights against it. Our flesh always wants to have the last word. It wants to win every battle. And God is saying he's the one that's going to win the battles. And he knows how to get that person's heart. And letting people think that they've won the battle is works on their, works on their psyche anyway. Yeah, it's a win-win situation. You know, you know, it's not why I do it because I do it because God is my defense, and I'm not and I'm not worried about it. The other, but it, psychologically, it works on their on their. You know, when they when you let them get the last word, they number one think they've won, but then they start wondering in the back of their mind, well, why didn't they argue further? You know, it's this whole idea where the proverb said that you heap coals of fire upon somebody by giving kindness when they're doing good. The purpose is not to keep the coals of fire on them, but it is the result. <laughs> Verbal abuse is as bad as others. Well, it's worse. It's worse than physical. The verbal oh, abuse hurts because you remember it for a lot longer. You know, the, the, the old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is the biggest lie we ever tell our kids. You are better off getting a broken bone because it heals, and people's, people nurse verbal hurts for the rest of their life. I've seen people 60, 70, 80 years old that are still nursing a verbal, verbal statement from some friend or enemy from their 20s and it still hurts them because it's it's stuck in the psyche. It's not stuck on the flesh. Emotional. It's an emotional harm, and it and it's much worse. 
And you know, we're not, I'm not trying to teach you how to manipulate people. I want you to learn to love people for God's reasons, and it saves you a lot of headache. It saves you a lot of headache to be godly. And it's not manipulating tools. It's not any of that. I've had people, you know, call me, you know, say things to me and, and say things that aren't true. And, you know, and I'm not going to argue with them because it's not going to accomplish anything. I've learned not to be baited into those kind of things. I'm not saying I haven't fallen all the time, but I see the baiting coming more often than not. You know, manage, manage for 15 years and learned real quick how employees try to bait managers into arguments and, and you know, reading the scriptures and all of this. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I fail, off, <laughs> I fail still, but I see most of it coming before it gets to me. And once I get there, I'm going, okay, God, help me not fall into this. Because my flesh is very much rising up, and, I, and when I feel my flesh rising up, I'm going, you know, I have two choices at that time, either let the flesh run or let God run. So ruffle your feathers. And, and, you know, and the key is just, just kick back and say, God, deal with it. And none of us are ever going to be perfect at it. You know. And re- believe me, when I, when I teach God's truth, I'm not trying to say I live 100% of God's truth. I live more of it now today than I did 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago. And each one of you are going to experience the same thing that as you go further and further, you'll look back and say, I'm living more godly today than I did however many years ago you want to look back. And you're becoming more of a man or, or a woman of God as you spend more and more time reacting and learning to react like he does. And we'll never be perfect. I wish we could be. Maybe I don't. They crucified Jesus because he was perfect. So maybe, maybe <laughs> being perfect isn't the place to be any either. I mean, that's our goal. But we might end up dead if we got perfect anyway. So it's... They said they could cut your head off for martyrism. They could... Uh, whatever we do, if it's not in the context of love, it's worthless. Yes, that's what, that's what uh, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. All the good we can do if it's not in love is worthless. Yeah. Is worthless is and, and not done right, and that is just, you know even being a martyr, if you're not doing it for love, is not is not of any benefit at all, and love is where it's at, and if you want to find out what love is, you read First Corinthians 13. It's the best description of love there is. You read it in the King James. Substitute charity for love, because it is agape love that it's talking about, and it is a love that loves people. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 13. It is a love that loves people no matter what they do. It's the love that Jesus had when he was being beat and scourged and nailed on the cross. He had agape love and said, Father, I love these people enough to do this and went through it. And it was all because he loved us. If he didn't love us, he would have just wiped out the entire world. (laughs) And we need to get to that place where God is going to have tested us enough that we pass more tests than not. We always want to be careful when we when we look at others because we might look at somebody and say, man, I would have never fallen for that test. Well, we don't know if we would have fallen for that test. If we had the same amount of faith that they did, we, we would probably have failed just as much. I also don't want to look at some people and say, well, how did they fall? Because I don't know what tests they went through to, to get to where they were. And man, if I had their test, I might have fallen long before they fell. So we want to be careful because God is God's very unique. He does he teaches each person with what is individualized to test them. Uh, none of you want to go through the test I'm going. I don't want to go through tests that other some of the other people I know are, are going because of their advanced you know placement with God. So we want to be careful oh, yeah. that we never judge one another for a failure because every test is designed to make us fail if we act in our flesh, no matter where we are on the and our spiritual growth, and we've talked about this, if you're in kindergarten, you get a kindergarten test. If you're in high school, you get a high school. If you're in university, you get a university test. God does the same thing with us. So, and this is where he's going to turn the furnace of trying our heart to the level that is going to be a trial. Verse 4, a wicked doer gives heed to false lips, and a liar gives ear to a naughty tongue. And this is that whole idea, the, the wicked... They expect, they, they listen to wicked things. And the liar listens to other liars, you know, and kind of expects that they're lying. And this is where we kind of see this 
idea that I hope as you get more and more mature and you start hearing lies, you start registering that they're a lie. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that I'm less and less watching TV because I see these subtle lies from Satan on the TV and, and we're watching the channel that is from the 60s and 70s shows, you know, and 80s, you know, that are fairly decent, you know, decent shows. And I'm still seeing the lie of Satan in most of these shows. You know, uh, you're getting, you've had more discernment. And getting the discernment and, and shows that I used to like, I look at and say, man, how could I have ever liked this show? Look at, look at how they're treating, you know, you know even though they didn't show fornication, they, it was, you know, they took it right up to the point where they disappeared and you knew what they were supposed to be, yeah, right. be doing. And the lies that they told about the families and, and the lies they told about relationships and, you know, and I look at them now and I'm saying, these aren't funny. They're not even good. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they're wicked, wicked bad. They're just little subtle lies that I'm beginning to pick up. And I'm getting to that point where I want to truth to be told. I want truth to be the standard. I want God to be the standard. You know, I go out in, in groups that aren't, aren't for church-related groups and you listen to the conversations. You know, and some of them are really aren't bad, bad conversations, but they're also not godly conversations. And you, know, you want to say, you know, they, they make your skin crawl, at least the, you know, they make the spiritual skin crawl. Then the cursing comes out. And sometimes cursing comes out, and that's not, you know. We, I used to call it swearing, but this is probably cursing. Depends. Really Most really of what goes on is swearing. I'm not really cursing anybody. It's just swear. It's just kind of like uh, vulgarity, yeah. or like you said, uh, the one. There's a, there's a huge difference between swearing Frank, and cursing, uh, and most most of what goes on is literally swearing. It's not most of it's not cursing in in our in our right, in our world. Right. It's just um, basic uh, language. Now they go, you know, they go, you know, using God's word with with damn on it, you know, and then you know that you know that's that crosses into a curse. I've been stopping people when they use words in vain. I will stop them. I say, don't use words in vain anymore. Around me anymore. Yeah. Well, it's, that's a good, st- I mean, that's a start in the right direction. So, I mean, it's wicked people enjoy being around wicked environment. You know, I don't know why, but it is true. Thieves hang around with thieves and, you know, and, and people that they can fence their stuff with. Liars end up getting together and seeing who can outlie each other. And, and I think it's because if they come around the righteous, even if we don't say something, we carry the Spirit of God with us. And the Spirit of God is convicting. And I've, and I've told you the story about my area supervisor who used to come in my store, and you know, apparently he was foul-mouthed in every other store, but he didn't curse and swear in my store. And it's not because I ever said, you can't do it. He was my boss. I'm a, you know, you know, it was the Spirit of God that was so enveloping my store because I brought him in there that I'm sure he felt convicted. Not because I said something, but because he felt convicted. And I've known people that say, I've heard people say, well, I feel so convicted when I'm around that person. Not because that person's speaking and, and uh, attacking them with the Spirit, but they bring the Spirit of God with them. And we as Christians bring the Spirit of God with us into every situation. And if we participate in what they're doing, then we negate the negate part of the conviction, but if and even if we don't say something, we're not participating in the, the strange stories and stuff, then God's Spirit will work. And it's amazing what God's Spirit will do. Because it's all about Him. We can't do anything anyway. It's all about Him coming out of us. And so we want to we be that person that brings God in. We're prayed up. We've studied our Bible. We're thinking about God. We're fellowshipping with God. We're praising God. And I hope we learn to praise God, sing songs and give him praise. And, you know, God says he loves, you know, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And some of us, that's all we do is make a joyful noise. And that's fine. God doesn't care. He wants to hear those praises. He wants to hear that we're thankful for what he's doing in our life. And this is where we start changing the way we think because we start looking at, okay, God, you're doing this. You're doing you're doing that. I could, be, I could be looking at all the negative things in my life right now and saying, I don't have these things. But I want to focus on, okay, but I do have these things. You know? and, and I was praying this morning, and I caught myself praying for things for my wife. 
you know, there's a couple things she would really like to have, and I'm going, God, I'd really like for you to help me get these things for my wife. And I realized that, you know, there's all kinds of things I'd like, but I was actually praying for her, you know, to get some of the things that she not necessarily needs but wants. And it's not that it's extravagant or anything like that, but there are certain things that she wants that I, I'd love to see God bless her with. You've been with her long enough to know what she's not to get. Well, it's not even that. It's just these are these are things that, you know, and again, they're not even needs. They're just things that I know that would really bless her if God provided. And I was praying for a few things for her. Uh, very specific. <laughs> and it just dawned on me that, you know, I was doing that. And, and we want to get to that place where we're loving people in a way that we're actually wanting them to be blessed. Even if we're not blessed, we want them to be blessed. And that is my goal for our church. I want to see our church members really being blessed spiritually, growing spiritually, growing into Christ, and being content with wherever God puts them. And if he puts them into great wealth, great. If he puts them into just contentment, great. Whatever's best for our people. I want to see our church filled with men and women of God that are seeking after God with all their heart, getting into the word, getting to know his word, and being able to express that to others. And if I can get that to happen, then I'm very happy. I'm a very blessed pastor to have that happen uh, and see what happens from, from there. You know, and this is where we are very different as Christians from those that are wanting to be around evil. And there's the old, old, old proverb that we have, birds of a feather flock together, and we see that. Christians will tend to hang around Christians and be blessed with Christ, you know, Thieves hang around, liars hang around together, murder, you know, you know, people who just have similar likes and, and thoughts will hang together. And very important for us to understand that. Now we as Christians have to get outside of our Christian circle and get into other circles a little bit, otherwise we're not having anybody to give the gospel to. But we need to do most of our time. Our best friends should be people who are godly people. If our best friend is somebody who's ungodly, we've got a problem. One of the two are going to affect the other, and usually, unfortunately, it's the ungodly affecting the godly. Uh, it does happen the other way around every once in a while, and you know, and but we need people, we need acquaintances to in in the world. Otherwise, we have nobody to witness to. Right. You know, so we need to have those people. We need to have our bowling leagues and our, you know, we you know quilting or card playing or whatever it is that we do. We need that with the world so they can see a godly impression. But we have, to, we have to enjoy ourselves. We have to do things that, that we enjoy. Uh, for me, it's easy. I enjoy studying the Bible, so it's very easy for me to stay there. But verse 5, Whosoever mocketh the poor reproaches his ma maker, and he that is glad at calamity shall not be unpunished. And this is that whole thing, you know, God says that who mo whoever mocks the poor reproaches or taunts his maker. God cares for the poor. And this is something we've got to be careful of because so many people will go, well, they deserve it. They're, you know, they're not trying hard enough. They're not, you know, they're not, you know, trying to do. And that is a judgment we, won't, we can't make. We can't make a judgment saying that they deserve what they've got because we don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. It's still none of our business. You know, our business is to do what we can to help. And this is, and the key there is to help. And that was the hard thing when I ran a benevolence committee was that, you know, when somebody came to you, were we helping them or we, were we enabling them to go a little longer in bad habits? And that was our hardest decision to make because it's very hard. You know, and usually the question was, well, okay, you're not paying it this month. How are, you know, what, why can't you pay it this month or can you pay it next month if we pay it this month? You know, and because you're not wanting to help, you know, enable somebody. Uh, he that is glad at calamity shall not go unpunished. And God says he's going to punish those who rejoice. And, and I've met people who get happy when somebody has a, bad, a hard time. And it's like God says, no, that's, you know. And this is where, I, where I've, I've watched some people even in my life that have harmed me that God has totally disciplined. And, and I'm not happy about what happened to them. It's like it makes me sad, you know. This one guy that ended up losing everything he had, that does not make me happy that he lost everything. Because maybe that's what he needed, obviously, otherwise God wouldn't have done it, but it's not something that makes me uh, or happy that he got what, what he deserves. Because that's not where we're supposed to be. 
you know, we should be brokenhearted when somebody is suffering. And I know that I get brokenhearted when people suffer. Okay. Or even if I think they deserve it, <laughs> I still feel brokenhearted that they've got some calamity in their life. You know, they lost their home, their house burnt down, they lost their job, whatever it might be. I'm not happy that that, that, that stuff happens you know, because it's, it's harmful. And we want to we be able to think more godly about everything. And that's, that's why I encourage people, do your Bible reading in the morning. Do your, do your praise and, and get yourself on the right track in the morning. The, the Bible tells us pray without ceasing and everything, give thanks. But you're not going to be able to do either one of those unless you start your day with God. And then once you start your day with God, then you might be able to concentrate on him the rest of the day. All right. Uh, but if you don't start with him, forget the rest of the day it's you know i'm the same way if i don't take the time to get into my bible in the morning i will probably get to the end of the night before i real and realize that i have not done my bible reading if i don't do my bible reading right when i'm having my first cup of coffee it never gets done yeah so i've just gotten the habit this year of, of getting the coffee and reading the reading today's reading and i'm the same way i i, I get up in the morning and i Take my wife to work, and between the time I take my wife to work and the time I take my son to work, I spend my time in the Word. If I don't do that, you know, and you go, well, you're the pastor. You've got plenty of time. My days go by just as fast as anybody else's day. Now, I spend a little bit of time studying for Bible studies and all of that, but my personal study for me, if I don't do it at the beginning of the day, it's probably not going to get done until the end of the night when I realize I haven't done it, and then I spend time, you know, getting it done. Uh, and you know, for me, the hardest day for me to get my Bible reading done is Sunday. It's a very busy day for me, and it's the hardest day for me to wow. get everything done because my mind immediately focuses on Sunday morning service. And I have to purpose hard because there's no, no taking my wife to work, no taking my son to work break in there. Uh, Saturday's not too too hard. There's not a lot that goes on on Saturday. Saturday is pretty easy. Sunday, my day that I'm most ministering to God is the day that I have the hardest time getting my personal study done. Oh, I see. I would think that that would be the same. Oh, I get lots of study done. Oh, don't get me wrong. I get lots of study done because I'm studying, you know, finalizing things for the sermon, thinking about the sermon. It's not that I'm not thinking about God that day. It's getting my personal reading done and my personal study done. And for a pastor, there's a big difference between what I do for myself and what I do for the church. Not that I don't learn anything when I study Proverbs and Leviticus. I learn a lot, and, and it's applicable, but it's not the same. I'm studying for huh. application to other people uh, for the church as much as... Well, that's like a mechanic doesn't like to work on their own car, but they'll work on everybody all day kind long. Of you really don't want to work on your own car. You get tired of working on the car. Yeah, that's the way I uh, I drove a crappy car just because I didn't feel like working on them. I'm too old to break in any car. I see how you feel. I yeah, it's just one of those things. It's because there is a difference. A lot of pastors don't recognize the difference between wow, personal study and, you know, they think, well, I'm studying. They think that's yeah. it. And a lot of pastors will fail to study for themselves in their lifetime. You're doing your hour here. You think that's enough. And it's, know? yeah, and a lot of people do. And, and it's, it's, it's good. I mean, I've learned from my study for this. This, this study, and I learned for tomorrow night, uh, for Sunday mornings, you know, Galatians or Sunday night's Psalms or yeah. Tuesdays, who we are in Christ. And, and it's not that those studies are worthless to me. I mean, I learn right. a lot, but yeah, it's, it's the application it's I'm looking at is for others. It's a different outlook. I just realized you have to do more than just study for others. You have to study for yourself as well. Right. And it's very important, and you can't substitute one for the other. It doesn't work. And like I say, it's not that I don't learn anything, and it's, it's not applicable. My, it's very applicable to my life as well, but it's just not the same thing. Uh, and besides the fact that I study a lot more for than I give, <laughs> uh, even when I make great notes down, I don't even give all my notes half the time. All right, verse six. Don't not just study for others. We need to study for ourselves. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. Excellent speech becometh not a fool, much less do lying lips a prince. A gift 
is as a precious stone in the eyes of him that has it, whosoever it turneth, it prospers, whithersoever it turneth, it prospers. He that covereth a transgression seeks love, but he that repeats a matter separates very friends. A reproof endures more unto a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. Children's children are a crown of the old men, and the glory of the children are their fathers. This is kind of an interesting statement. We as older people are going to be able to say, these are my grandchildren, you know, in this case, great-grandchildren, uh, great children's children, grandchildren, excuse me, grandchildren. Great-great. No, grandchildren, just, you know, your children's children, your, your oh. grandkids. Your grandkids are your, are your crown. You know, and you see that grandparents love their 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 grandkids, you know, yeah. and they they take great pleasure in them, uh, and as long especially as long as they're being raised right and 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 being a blessing, but it's also our job as grandparents to reach out to our grandkids and help them get spiritually set up as well. And the glory of the children are their fathers. And if you've got a righteous father, this means more to you than anybody else. But you know. I love my dad, and I recognize the influence he had in my life. My kids are starting to learn, for the most part, the influence that I had in their life, and they're starting to see that they were blessed by having a godly father that trained them upright. And I've always had the opinion that my dad has been a good spiritual leader and a good trainer. And we take pleasure, and it's a reciprocal pleasure. The we take pleasure in our children as they raise their kids in a godly manner, and we take pleasure in our grandkids or great-grandkids if we live, wa live long enough for that to happen. But we is, should be taking pleasure in our fathers. And those of us, those who don't have godly fathers, hopefully they can find something that they can take pleasure in on their father and, and look at a positive side. You know, if there's nothing positive there, find somebody that you can be positive about that had impact. You know, a lot of times some... You know, if you've really had a really bad father or no father, then you've had some father figure in your life that helped you. And you need to look at that person and say, this is the person that raised me. This is the person that taught me right from wrong. Uh, and this is the importance of, you know, us being involved in people's lives who, who don't have fathers, don't have mothers, that we can be able to shape them in a godly shaping. Because uh, most of the problems in this world are because of the lack of fathers, godly fathers in people's lives. And you see it, the jails are full of people that have, have had no father in their life or an abusive father. And the impact of a godly father in somebody is amazing. You know, and we see it in the scripture, but we see it just in real life. If you see somebody going wrong, chances are, I mean, it's not 100%, but chances are they've not had a good father figure in their life. They did not have a father that showed them how to react when people angered you, how to show love, how to how to do things in a positive light. And I'm not talking about just learning how to play baseball and everything, but how to live life. And and this is important. A godly influence in people's life is important. And really needs to be the fathers because that's who God says it's supposed to be. The fathers were to train up their kids in righteousness. And unfortunately, in our day and age, most men have delegated or reneged on their responsibility and passed it to the wo woman. And I'm glad that the women have stood up and tried to fill the gap. You remember that program they called Big Brothers of America? Where you had a little bit Somebody trying to be, be your men a, a male mo mentor. I don't yeah. hear much about that anymore. It still exists. It's still it's Big Brother Big Sister still exists. That but this whole idea of, you know, there's supposed to be this reciprocal relationship where each person is taking pride in the other one, you know, and we take pride in our kids and our grandkids, and they are eventually probably going to take pride in a righteous, godly father or mother. And it's very important. One more verse. Excellent speech be becomes not a fool, much less do lion lips a prince. And this is a, a very clear, strong... You know, it's really just a truth. I mean, it's it's not saying mu it's not saying much of anything. It is it is a truth that 
the idea of excellent speech in the mouth of a fool does not make sense. It just doesn't happen. You know, I'm going to see a foolish person talking wisdom. Uh, and it, by the same token, a priest should not be one who is lying. You know, uh, or excuse me, the prince. A prince should not be one who lies. Uh, there should be honesty in your government, your, your rulers. Uh, and prince here is a very generic, you know, title, but it is basically those who rule shouldn't be liars. Unfortunately, in our, in most governments, that's not a true statement. Uh, but the idea from God is that they should be truthful. And we want to be so careful because we don't want to be known as liars. We need to be truthful. And just as we looked at on Leviticus the other night, God's standard for truth is much higher than what any of us would say truth is. His truth was, in, in Leviticus 5, was that if you know something was, was wrong and you don't say something about it, you've lied. You've lied by omission. Okay? And, you know, that's not how we normally look at truth, in, you know, from the world's point of view. But God's elevation of truth is so much higher that it is something that needs to be considered. He wants us to be truthful. And the courts don't go with, don't, you know, when you, if you've ever gone to court and, you, and your lawyer talks to you, basically the lawyer says, do not say anything more than what they've asked for you. In other words, you tell the truth, you don't lie, but you also don't tell the whole truth. You know, you don't, and the, and the oath really is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but your lawyers are teaching you, don't tell the whole truth. Uh, you only answer the exact question answered, and please don't provide anything new, you know, more to them than what they ask. And that's what they tell all witnesses, you know, when they're prepped, to tell just what you're asked, nothing more. So we are, we train up people to be basically liars. You know, uh, they're not, they're not lying by commission, they're lying by omission. They're not telling the whole of what they know. And then we have miscarriages of justice because they're not being they're not they're not being truthful. And it says here that you know excellent speech, you know, from a fool. If you know somebody who's very foolish and does the wrong things, you never expect them to say to say no. anything really, really, you know, really wise yeah, and you know, Yeah, you're not gonna expect them to say something that's really good and building you up when they're when they're when they're basically foolish speakers. Right. Don't ever pay a drunk money you owe them because they won't remember it and they'll say you still owe them money. You better not better off not making loans at all like God said to, so yeah, don't make any loans. Uh, never loan more than you can afford to lose. For me, that's pretty much my, my attitude. If I give somebody money, it is a gift. It's I never if somebody wants to pay me back, then that's that's great. Well, if no, they tell me they're gonna back. No, it's when you pay them back yeah. money that they've lent you, then they forget they have a don't don't be a borrower either. So yeah, don't be a borrower nor a lender be. It, Let those do not yeah, lawyers tell us not to tell all the truth. Yeah, it's it's just it's that's the world's way of thinking. So it, uh, you know they're not even going to tell you. They're not even telling you don't tell all the truth. They, their their statement is say just what answer just what you were asked, nothing more. They don't even look at it as lying. God looks at it that you're lying. Okay, our world looks at it that you have just obfuscated basically you have not told the whole truth you just you are you're not telling you know not telling a lie but you're not telling the truth uh, and it's the difference between God's standard and the world standard and this is why we got to be careful because when we when we're out there we have a higher standard as Christians the world's not going to understand our standard uh, Reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, and how many times in, in the Fox's Book of Martyrs the, the Christian was given the opportunity to recant Jesus or swear allegiance to some other deity, and they didn't. It's amazing. You know, amazing as, as people would watch their whole families wiped out in front of their eyes because their family wouldn't, wouldn't recant, and they were hoping that by killing the kids that they would re recant, and over and over they wouldn't recant. Now, I'm not saying nobody did, but they wouldn't make it into Fox's Book of Martyrs if they had recanted because it was about martyrdom. And, and even in the book, it says there were many who, who failed. They didn't give names or anything. They just said there were many that, that failed. 
and their names are, of course, aren't known <laughs> because they failed. Like and I said, had the condition of love. And for us, it's the same way. When we do things right, our name is going to be known in heaven and maybe even elsewhere. But when we do wrong, even in the world, if you do, if you give up, you don't, you don't, your name's not known. You know, uh, you know, you only remember the people that did something. <laughs> Whether it's good or bad, you remember the people who did something. If all they did was nothing or, and failed to do anything, they're not important. You know, I don't want to say they're not important, but they, they're not important to history. You know, they're important to somebody. Uh, hopefully they've done something that makes them important to somebody. You know, unfortunately I know some people that are, you know, so bad that nobody wants to claim them, you know, claim them at all. But, you know, the idea is, have they done something that is noteworthy enough to be remembered? And I hope in every life that there's something that they've done, even if they're a town drunk, hopefully there's something in their lifetime they've done to give them some redemptive remembrance. Because it's important. It's important. But for us as Christians, we need to live for God. And we may not be remembered on this earth, but we're going to be remembered in heaven. We're going to be rewarded in heaven. And sometimes we're going to be rewarded for things that we didn't even know we'd done. Just because I held my tongue and didn't give somebody a reason to, to dislike Christians because I was just like the world, or I gave a cup of cold water to somebody, or took somebody to, a, you know, get, bought somebody a hamburger that was hungry or, you know, something that we didn't even think that was, you know, that big a deal. And I've had many things in my life that I've done that I didn't think was a big deal. I was just living my life. And then people have come up and said they were blessed by what I did or, or ministered to. And it's like, you know, and you're thinking in your life, like, you know, all I was doing was living my life. I wasn't even. I let plenty of people sleep in my van. I wasn't doing anything that, you know, and this is when your great blessings are going to come when you get to heaven and all of a sudden it says, I was living my life and this person got affected and this person got affected and I may not know anything about them, but they're in heaven because of something that I did. Give them a ride. <laughs> yeah, give them a ride. You know, who know, you never know what it is. You know, you gave them three or four bucks in your pocket or you, you gave an offering that went to the missionaries who were able to, to reach people. We never know what it is that we're doing. You know, I'm looking at our internet connection here and going, we're ministering to more people online than we do here in, in the person. What is that going to mean in the future? I don't know. But there may be people in heaven because this church put a website together and I've taught and put the, put the messages up on the website and there may be people going to heaven because of those messages and we're not going to know about them until we get to heaven. And God's going to say, look at this church, the Chloride Church, you've got you know, five dozen people say, I don't know. <laughs> Because you, because you did this. We don't know what it is. Maybe there's only one. I don't know. Maybe there'll be none. But we're, we're out there being ministering to people. And we do things that we never know what the eternal impact is. You know, I write all these birthday cards and anniversary cards out there, and people go to look, you know, and people will tell me that they were touched by what was said. And I, and I pray over each one of these cards that I write down a little personal note on because I want them to be real. I don't want them just to be a... <laughs> You know, this is what I sign every time. You know, every one of my cards is different. Every one of my cards is, I hope, encouraging. Right. You know, but just a little thing, a little thing that we do for people. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and ask you your word go out for us. We ask you to be guiding us in all that we do. Help us to live a righteous life. Help us to learn to love others in a real genuine love, Lord, that shows you and all that we do. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.